Hey everybody and welcome to Get Your AI On, the podcast. I'm Ciprian Borodescu and this podcast is brought to you by Algolia, the AI-powered search and discovery platform. I'm the host of the show and every episode I invite founders, entrepreneurs, business leaders and even AI researchers to share with us their experience in dealing with business problems that can be solved through intelligent use of data. This is episode number 26. Let's get your AI on. I'm here with Grant Wernick, a multi-time founder currently at his third venture, Fletch, and his second venture in data analytics and cybersecurity. Grant, it's an honor to have you on this podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Chip. Thanks for having me. Excited to, uh, excited to be here and really enjoy your vision and what you're doing around uh, AI and machine learning. It's, uh, the industry needs this. Thank you. And uh, we got connected through a common acquaintance, Andrea Georgescu, one of the first guests on this podcast, and now product manager at Fletch. Am I right? That's right. Uh, great addition to our team. A really fun person to work with. And I listened to that episode. She uh, she's a well-spoken person too. So lucky to have her as uh, as part of this awesome team at Fletch. Now this is not something I usually do, but there's a first time for everything. Here's a surprise for you and for our listeners. That's funny. That's a really funny uh, way to start. Why don't you tell people why we started with this? What's the story behind more data, more problems? Yeah, that's basically uh, something I talked about for a really long time. Uh, what people don't understand is is that we've just been hoarding data for so long, and it's like, what are, what are we going to do with this stuff? Uh, we're we're in a world of of race car drivers, and we're asking them to teach drivers ed, and it's like, okay. And then we're in a world of like a massive talent gap and we really need to, to change the industry a lot from this whole more data, more problems kind of attitude of like, well, that's my, my take on it, but just more like data hoarding to more like, what are we going to do with it? What, what, what's, what's the smart thing to do with it? How do I empower that race car driver I hired and how do I, how do I automate a lot of this stuff? And uh, let's analyze the three main problems you are sol- solving with Fletch. Data plumbing, knowing what to ask of your data, and getting answers fast. Let's dive deeper and understand data plumbing. One of the things that I've heard you say, and I uh, love it, is on your blog, before data can be an opportunity, it is a problem to be solved. It's very interesting to me, and I'm sure for our audience. Can you please expand? Absolutely. Um, So the three things that everything goes back to is uh, garbage in, garbage out. Um, And for the most part, people spend 90% of their time, and this has been definitely my experience doing uh, machine learning, natural language processing startups for the last decade is you spend way too much of your time doing the data cleanup, the the structuring of it, the deleting the fields, the 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 data modeling, um, and to move from what we want, which is intelligence, to move from 
just raw data and then starting to get insights out of it and starting to get knowledge out of it and eventually intelligence and eventually something that's structured in a, a smart enough way that we can actually start running machine learning algorithms on it and have it uh, come up with new things we maybe never dreamed of. Well, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta dig through it. And so it's not, people love to say data is a new oil. It's not really the new oil, although you do have to go through quite the refining process uh, before you actually can do anything with it. But just because you're sitting on data, unlike oil, oil already has known value. Not all data is created equally. Uh, that's very good. That's very good. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a, it takes really creative minds figuring out how data fits together and it's the non-obvious things about data it's how like okay if i take information about people's locations and i take information about um the times of day that they do something and if i take information around their typical behavior around the kinds of things they touch or documents they touch i can start developing patterns about about somebody's user behavior. We're going to talk about that later in the conversation, but it takes a very creative mind. And, and I love to say like one of the biggest powers of data that we're just starting to scratch the surface of is, is this, and you're, you're a pro at this is starting to, to be able to create ways to harness this human creativity and let that heavy lifting, let the machine learning let the algorithms kind of help you structure things so the human can do what's uniquely um, human. And here's the thing. Uh, when you are creative, you don't actually even need to apply AI or machine learning to all of those. Uh, you can simply analyze and find a lot of insights just by using regular good old-fashioned statistics or analytics. I, I couldn't agree more. And I, that, that's also where machine learning and AI gets extremely overhyped. You can do so much just by using your brain and and letting like let the machine learning a great use of machine learning and a great use of um, yeah. algorithms is is on the structuring of, of the data so you can actually put it in a form so that you can run statistics over it and you can actually see things with a human eye. Humans are good at very creative problems. I love using the analogy, and I've used it many times in my public speaking. Of a human can walk down a beach in the south of France, and a human can see that there's two people dressed in snow clothes. And very quickly, in, in, in a New York instance, say, okay, that, those people don't belong. But the amount of machine learning that it would take for a machine learning algorithm to know those two people don't belong, <laughs> quite a bit. That's awesome. Uh, but, you know, uh, Grant, you mentioned initially that, you know, we do have a talent gap, especially in the machine learning world. How, how would you explain this kind of stuff to a machine learning engineer that they want to work on cool things. How do you bridge that gap for that machine learning engineer? It's an extremely difficult uh, gap. That problem exists in all sides of um, analytics, all sides of machine learning. And I, I work a lot in cybersecurity, and the problem is extremely acute in the United States, 500,000 plus uh, job deficit. And you're like, wait, we need we need to five, fill five hundred thousand jobs in, right now, and it's like you, you can't. Um, yeah. And there are varying levels, and that's also what people don't understand. You don't need a, a race car driver to fill every job. You don't need people like you and our friend Andrea to fill every job. Those are the high level jobs. 
There we go. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of organizations miss that, that data is a process. Data is a very important part of your company. And as you harness more data, you need people doing a lot of different jobs around data. And so my answer to you is, is a let's unfold it. It's a few different things. It goes back to uh, educating people. And it goes back to educating people that there is an opportunity here for high-paying jobs. And some of those jobs may not be that sexy. So we need people who are helping teach machine learning algorithms to structure data, semi-supervised models. Oftentimes, those can be retooled people or people who maybe, let's say, you're in a factory. And you've worked in that factory for many years. You know that factory better than anybody else. Well, automation comes around, you're like, I'm going to lose my job. Well, if you're smart about it, you're not going to lose your job. In fact, you could probably get paid a lot more because you can start teaching the next generation of machines that are going to automate the the boring, the monotonous, the SHIT work, as we like to say. Uh, Yeah. And you now up-level yourself because you have that unique human knowledge. And so you're taking somebody at a tradesman level, not somebody like you at a PhD level, and and now you're actually making them part of the new data economy. And so it's having companies educate that these opportunities are, are possible. It's creating those opportunities in those places. And it's, uh, it's also going back to the university system and, and even the trade school system or high school and educating people in the system like, hey, this, these exist. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. So you, you mentioned educating people. What other components do we have? So the other thing that that we need to do is we need to rethink the way we apply machine learning AI. We want machine learning AI to do the sexy stuff. But in machine learning AI, I, I've thought for a very long time, and, and I've actually implemented it in multiple companies, how you use machine learning AI in conjunction with smart algorithms, in conjunction with smart humans, knowledge engineers, to to create a symbiotic system where they're all helping each other move forward. And if you can do that, then you use machines to automate the, those lame things, as I talked about a second ago, and then you start creating a much um, better place for these very expensive uh, folks who do have master's degrees and PhDs and data related fields, because you start utilizing these people a lot better. And so we may have a massive talent shortage. Well, it's because these really smart people are, are doing really monotonous top, uh, t- tasks right now. That's why my joke at the beginning about uh, you're hiring race car drivers to teach driver's ed is so true because you don't need to do data modeling. Like, yeah, you do, maybe to some extent, but the amount of time somebody like you probably has to do data modeling work compared to actually doing the sexy machine learning is disproportionate to what it should be. It should be the inverse of what it is today. You know what I mean? Um, I was wondering, while you were explaining this, where does Fletch sit in this entire ecosystem? Um, Awesome. So Fletch is my new company. Uh, We have been very stealthy for the last couple of years as we built Fletch. Um, Fletch is the very calculated understanding of the data analytics space. It's the product of that. It is us working hands-on, a team of people that's worked together for quite a while, that's done multiple startups together. And it's us working hands-on with the various analytics teams, especially security analytics teams, to 
realize what the acute problems of the industry are. And as I look at that, as I looked at that about three years ago, as you're starting to get going with Fletch, uh, we saw a bunch of uh, a bunch of very important things. Um, one, analytics products tend to be blank slates, meaning you do need some super smart people to come fill them up and do anything with them. And so you're not going to get the intelligence you want out of them, although they're going to cost a lot of money. So in general, analytics costs a ton of money, both in terms of the products, the backends that need to support them, like the cloud resources that need to support them, um, the professional services that you need to deploy from those companies, the amount of time that it takes for them to deploy it, and then the, the, the level of people, the expense of people you need to, to run these things. And then the next thing that we observed is that all this data plumbing was being the 90% of the day for the smartest people, the race car analogy a few minutes ago. And the third thing we observed is executives are never getting the intelligence they want out of these products. So if you see a, a system that's broken, it costs too much, it isn't given the intelligence, and your smartest people are doing plumbing. Oh, yeah. Well, Fletch can solve those things. And over the next five to seven years, you'll see Fletch as we, as we come, become bigger and bigger, we'll solve the data analytics problems so that data really can be the, or really can deliver on the promise that it's had in the media for so long. The promise that the company has been so excited about uh, for so long. And you'll see a much, a much different world. Today, Fletch is very focused on cybersecurity. It's something we're very passionate about as a team of people. And it's a place where these needs are extremely acute. Uh, and in the world of COVID, as, as things have changed and your teams are going more remote uh, across the country, across the world, um, the need for cybersecurity is is gone up exponentially. It used to kind of be a nice to have for the biggest companies. Now it's something that is uh, a necessity no matter what size company you are. And the amount of technical transformation that happened because of COVID is just uh, massive at the same time. So Fletch comes at a time where, where there's a perfect storm. What if data analytics could be turnkey? What if you could say like, hey, I want to solve hard cybersecurity problems, like let's say insider threat. And you were able to come into it and you were able to say, connect my, my data, takes a few minutes from a human, and then Fletch can go to town, all the data plumbing, and extracting the intelligence so that a trained eye can now um, go extract even more value out of it. So we took out all the, all the mundane, all the all the humdrum work uh, out, out of the equation. And so you can actually get the promise of data instead of a year while you're talking about a, a couple days. And so that's what Fletch is really after, is changing that model. We're starting out with three of the most biggest problems in cybersecurity. One, being insider threat, like I just mentioned. Two, being external threats, that stuff trending the news. And you're like, do I have that or not? Well, wouldn't it be nice to be able to read that news in terms of uh, what's going on in your company, we're making that happen. Like in real time, here's my company's footprint. Here's our technology. Here's all of our endpoints and our vulnerabilities. Let's triangulate that with what's going on in the news in real time. And, and boom, you have like your own personalized newspaper about your company. And three, it's like helping you run your business in the cloud. These three things, 
account for 80% of what is necessary to have a have a strong cybersecurity footprint to protect against things like ransomware. And if you if you're if you're doing these things today, it costs a fortune. Well, what if these things are inexpensive? What if these things are automated? And uh, what if these things are things that everybody can deploy? That's what Fletch is doing. And it's funny, you're catching me at a really fun time. In about uh, one week, our, our first part of our product, which is uh, Insider Threat, we call them solutions. They're kind of like little bite-sized pieces. You can purchase them individually, kind of like a Netflix movie. Um, goes live, goes, and anybody can buy it. It's really exciting. I thought user behavior analytics is not something new in the MarkTech space. But it seems that it's a bit newer in the cybersecurity security world. Why do you think that is? So uh, UBA, or User Behavior Analytics, um, folks like you and me understand what it is. Uh, folks like your listeners all understand what that is. Um, but for the most part, the average person in business doesn't actually know what it is. Um, in cybersecurity, you could think about it as a solution to a problem that many of us have, which is insider threat. Insider threat is either uh, people in your company knowingly doing something malicious or their accounts being taken over by somebody who is, is uh, a bad actor um, or somebody by accidentally doing something uh, malicious, which is a lot of the, the problem you have today is people just aren't educated enough on it. Mm -hmm. And so user behavior analytics solves the problem of insider threat. But why, why isn't uh, it, it more mainstream? Mm -hmm. Well, it's expensive. Um, there are a few companies that have tried this kind of stuff over the last five to seven years, um, but it's heavy machine learning. It's black boxes. Yeah. It's uh, a lot of infrastructure underneath, so you have to be willing to deploy quite a few cloud resources or pay those companies for their resources. It requires yeah. quite a bit of professional services. Uh, and it takes six to eight months to start training the algorithms and your false positive rate is still super high. So why is it not more, more of a, a big yeah. deal? Uh, well, it's, it's not easy to do. And so only the biggest companies could even think about it. And so something I've always dreamed of is how do we make this something anybody can have? Well, if you can connect things, if you can triangulate things, if you can do this all for people, and then using natural language, which yeah. is a big part of my background, if you can make that be something that it makes it transparent and not a black box, um, and then instead of charging hundreds of thousands of dollars for something like this, if you could do something super affordable, like a dollar per account monitored, um, all of a sudden it actually does become mainstream. And so actually part of what I'm out to do here with Fletch, one of the first things and the thing we're releasing here in two weeks, is show people like user analytics user behavior analytics is, is not that foreign and, and it can be very valuable and is quite the solution to inside a threat for security that people have looked for for a long time. And so it's, it's a bit of an education thing and it's a bit of a budget thing and, and it's a bit of uh, an effectiveness thing. And so we're, we're solving all of those uh, here at once. So hopefully, uh, hopefully we, we can be a, a company and that, me personally, I mean, I'm pretty darn, darn passionate, as you can hear about that, um, to show people how powerful it can be for cybersecurity. And it's a, it's a very challenging industry, domain, and problem <laughs> to crack. So absolutely. And one of the questions that I like to ask is, what is the anatomy 
of your AI product. So what is the anatomy of Fletch AI? If you were to dissect Fletch AI, what would you see if you had a magnifying glass? What are the layers that make up Fletch? The high-level com components, at least. And if I may add, from this anatomy, what makes it an AI beast and not something else? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Um, so, interestingly, uh, uh, the name Fletch is a fun name to say, and a lot of people really enjoy hearing it. And so, uh, the AI domain was the was the shortest domain, right? So we chose that. But it's also very fitting for us because most people would say what we do is AI. But what that would be marketing. And that's not true. It's only partially true. Uh, sorry, Grant, you know, there's actually a saying. Uh, when you want to talk to marketers or business people, you say you do AI. When you want to talk to machine learning engineers or software engineers in general, you say you do machine learning. <laughs> that's so true, Chip. So that's more of the truth. Um, uh, my co-founder, uh, Jacob Perkins, he has a blog called streamhacker.com, and Jake's been writing about natural language processing and machine learning for about a decade. Um, and you, if, you, if you read his blog at all, and some of you may actually read it, uh, he, he, he likes to talk about how a lot of a lot of this stuff is it's machine learning, it's algorithms, it's humans, mm -hmm. and it's all, and that's really what Fletch is. If you were to dissect Fletch, you'd you'd find a bunch of smart algorithms, you'd find a bunch of really um, well written code, uh, you'd find a bunch of automation um, and systems that bring data together in smart ways, and in every single part of this, you'd find pockets of machine learning that make it smarter. And we're a big fan of creating semi-supervised models. So the part of our system that probably is most prevalent uh, with semi-supervised models is, our, is how we organize and automate the, the data plumbing and pulling it together and predicting what fields uh, matter and extracting intelligence. Uh, the other side that's uh, very obvious from our background is the natural language side where we have knowledge engineers Partnering. Those are for those who don't know what knowledge engineers are. They're not really engineers. They're more people who work with words and language to um, to decipher what what meaning is. And a lot of companies, like the big guys like Amazon and Google, use them for their speech recognition technology a lot. Um, so it's a partnership between these folks that have a nice set of internal tools, where they're saying this is the meaning of this. This is the meaning of this, and. It's that language, it's that mapping that starts teaching the, the machine learning algorithms and creates this loop between code, machine learning, and, and humans that's ever evolving. And so that's probably the most important thing to remember about most technologies that you see that are really effective around natural language or, or machine learning usually have a human loop component, especially as we start entering an era where we should be more transparent about these things. It enables you to be more transparent about these things and it doesn't need to be just marketing hype. So that's a really good phrase you said, Chip. Yeah, I love that. Really nice explanation, beautifully put. And I know that you're backed by investors like 
August Capital, Google Ventures, DCVC, and Splunk. And how many investors did you have to talk to before reaching to the ones that actually get what you're doing with or without AI? I've done a lot of work with a lot of entrepreneurs. I've helped a lot of people raise money. Um, AngelList, like in the early days, helped get that off the ground. Uh, I'm very passionate about entrepreneurship. And entrepreneurship is an apprenticeship model. I'm lucky to have been taught by some of the best people uh, in the industry and been exposed to them at very young ages and been able to have that mentorship. Um, raising money is a lot like going on dates. You're, you're going you're gonna to find a lot of dates where it's not right for you, it's not right for them, and it's usually pretty darn obvious. If you find yourself having to overly convince, probably not a good fit for either one of you. Um, and I look at that as a very positive thing. Uh, my friend uh, Nivi, he's one of the co-founders of AngelList. Uh, he taught me. He's taught me a lot. He um, he he always said it's like it's okay. It's it, it, it's it's great. It's like it, you're, that that quick no is really helpful on either part, your part or theirs. Uh, because you're looking for the right fits to build your business and you need people to believe in your vision and what you're doing. Um, and so that's really important. Yeah. Many times I've talked about uh, when I when I talk to budding entrepreneurs, uh, maybe it's a point of pride for me, I don't know, but it's uh, I've actually turned down significantly more money than I ever brought in um, because I've always looked for people that want to move the world forward like we do. Uh, people who don't think about just a quick hit, people who think about actually building transformational technologies, people are in this to to change the world, and and the, the investors we have are those kinds of people. Uh, look at look at their portfolios; it's very telling. And look at who they are as as people, like data collectives. Uh, I've seen them since the very beginning. They've been a very helpful investor, and they uh, and they've done a lot for the for the machine learning and AI space and now bio. Um, I, I think I think about folks like them and how they help connect the dots and how they help move the industry forward. Or um, our largest investor is actually August Capital. That's David Hornick who's behind that. And he has a new fund, um, Lobby VC. And he did the lobby conference and he's quite the, he's seen it all. And so having David involved in my company was, was, was quite a no-brainer. He was one of the first backers of Splunk. Uh, so, you know, there's a space one, but two, he's seen it all and he can really be a great sounding board as I'm making hard decisions to, to build a company. The It's one thing to build really cool tech. I love building really cool tech, but it's another thing to make it into a business and having investors who help you make it into a business and understand what has been has happened before is really important. And a lot of these folks actually are angels in us. Um not necessarily the big firms. I find angels and finding angels who've done it, been there, done that before, are super helpful. And so like Eric Swan, he's a, he's a founder of Splunk, but he's an angel in us. And he's extremely helpful. He's on our board. And so I find that fo folks that uh, individuals are very important to the equation too. So don't don't rule out individuals when you're raising money and you're, and you're trying to do something really hard, really technical like like we are. And I'm totally happy to talk about this at length with any of your uh, listeners, if they if they're really curious about it, I'm very passionate about about this topic of finding people who are, are the right fits. There's also the different stages. I'll end on this topic about it. There's different stages of raising. In the early days, you want people to believe in you and your vision. In the mid tier, it's it starts seeing your vision come alive. It's people who can start helping you uh, scale that vision, help you get more customers, help you find the gotchas. 
in the later stages, it's people who can really help uh, your 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 company become a mainstay and your company be, become something that everybody's talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's different investors you want at different stages as well. Based on your experience and also talking with other fellow entrepreneurs, do we really, but really understand what we're asking of AI, of us? So I actually don't think people understand what they're asking of AI. I think people are asking for miracles from AI, uh, especially the business um and me i skirt both sides and more business side these days than technical side uh but it's very difficult for people not to see it as black magic and it's not black magic it's really hard freaking work and so we're still in the early stages of ai my, my father's um an early hp engineer and a longtime technologist he's a fun person to talk with and my team all enjoys talking to him but he loves to say ai will always be 10 years away yeah, that's a good one. And yeah. Yeah, to some extent, that may always be the case. Um, a good a good example is how awesome Tesla's self-driving car is. It's marketed as self-driving. It is not self-driving. It is really awesome. I own a Tesla. I think it's great. Um, it definitely helps me be a better driver. Uh, but it's semi it's semi supervised. It's a human machine working together. And, and as, if we start thinking a lot more about AI technologies of humans and machines working together, I think we move the industry forward dramatically faster than we are. And instead of trying to invest tons of money in the last mile and trying to have machines rule it all, a machine's like a child. It can only it can only do what it's been taught, and yes, it can do permutations and interesting things from that. Uh, but they're going to be interesting and weird. They may not be exactly what you need. Child oftentimes does things you don't really want it to do so uh so more of this vision around humans and machines working together i think will really change the industry more and and investors um putting more money in companies that think that way and really digging into companies uh in the early stages and like figuring out if they really think that way or if they're trying to do a pure play uh, thing pure play things in general probably still should be in the research world which is a great place for them to be uh, but people are being practical about building businesses should be talking like this. Excellent. I usually like to surprise my listeners and guests with a special question of the episode, one that has a bit more weight to it and it's a bit more delicate to answer. You kind of already answered it, but <laughs> what is the ugly or what is the other ugly truth about AI that no one wants to talk about? Yeah, it's it's a marketing hype thing talking about it definitely is that but and, and it's also um it's also the amount of shit work that really is a ai and it's also where a lot of companies like to say we don't have humans loop. we don't have humans teaching things and it's like you look at some of the massive tech giants it's like yeah you have humans using your search engine every single day what's What's so bad about using humans at the end of the day right i mean yeah i think that's actually the biggest thing it's like so many people are like I don't. I, I want to say it's a pure play machine. It's like, don't worry. It's not, and it can't be. And humans are uniquely capable of what we're doing. And the more that we embrace that perspective, instead of saying AI is going to take over, the less afraid people are going to be about it. The more it'll make, make society better, and, and the more that it it won't be this this dark force that could potentially take it over. And so, yeah, I think that really is is it. You hit the nail on the head. It's making it making it be a very human centric world as opposed to 
uh, and being honest about that uh, as opposed to this it's a black box and you don't even know what's going on one of the things that i also heard uh, i like to talk about ethics uh, especially in ai and somebody i i think i saw a tweet or something on linkedin and they were saying something like hey there's no ai ethics there's no ethics to ai is the human ethics that's behind the ai machines machines don't think in terms of that there's no there's no such thing as ethics to them they 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 do the model you taught them to move towards and if you taught them with bad things and you yeah. instilled your ethics it's much like raising a child if you're a parent who believes in certain things a child's going to be raised that way and breaking out of that's going to be really hard and they the ais don't have an ability necessarily to break out of it obviously because the way they're trained um and so yeah so this this comes down to us as inventors us as creators using ai for 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 good to help move society forward um as opposed for bad but there's plenty of ways that ai is being used as quote quote bad um in cybersecurity, of course the attackers that attack the major nation states of course they're using ai to create permutations of malware and such that have never been dreamed up before great a very practical use of it for their needs they may not see themselves as bad so bad is really, it's kind of relative. It's really interesting. And then so us as the defenders, we're constantly having to adapt. And this is where we need to deploy better versions of ourselves to protect against uh, against these kinds of things. It's, it's, a, it's a, never, a never-ending battle, but I guess that all goes back to the way humanity has, has been since the beginning of humanity and human nature. There's always going to be different sides of ethics. Can I ask you one more question? I know this is not part of a of our list of topics, but I yeah. I, I was just thinking about it, and I uh, you seem to be a very very knowledgeable and experienced entrepreneur. And what I, what kind of questions do you usually like to ask machine learning engineers, AI product managers, when you are interviewing them? So, I am very into eq or like how that person thinks how they feel um and so what i like to do is like i like to go in the room with the notion that i've already run that person through enough of a technical gauntlet they probably have the right pedigrees that they um they've done the right things in their lives and they 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 they're probably very technically astute they probably wouldn't be in our office if they hadn't gotten to that yeah. point to meet me and so what I'm looking for in these people that you mentioned, all of those roles, is I'm looking for creative thinking. I'm looking for different thinking. I'm looking for um, a creative conversation um, to see how that person thinks. We could talk about something they're passionate about. We could talk about rock climbing. I, I'm, at one point in my yeah. life, I was a pro climber. And we could, talk about that. we could talk about something they're passionate about so you can see their passion. And so usually I'll try to do is I'll try to see, okay, how, how creative do they think? And start, I'll start getting in a problem-solving conversation with them. Is there a topic they're super passionate about? And listen to them wax poetically about that. And, and then the third thing I'm looking for is I'm looking for them to ask me questions. Um, I'm looking for them to ask me questions to show they're a curious human being. Those could be questions about the business. They could be questions about my past. They could be questions about the vision. Um, 
Or they could be questions, even more importantly, about the topics that are emerging in the conversation because it shows me how interested they are in the back and forth of what we're doing right there. So much of building startups is not the fact that a person has a perfect technical pedigree and went to the exact right schools. So much of building startups is a chemistry of the team of people working together um, and how they gel and how they play off of each other and how, how they make each other better. And so that's, that's what I'm looking for. And, and that's very different. And that actually helps you think differently when you're hiring people to solve this talent gap. Yeah. You don't need to hire every single person from the top tier schools. There's plenty of people out there that think differently. And a lot of the technical skills uh, may be gettable by somebody who is really curious and investing in that person. Grant, it was a pleasure to have you on this podcast. And thank you so much for sharing your wisdom with me and with us. How can people reach out to you for ideas and comments? Uh, Feel free to reach out to me, um, Fletch.ai. And you can reach out to me on Twitter. Follow me on Twitter. I'm pretty active on Twitter now, um, Mm -hmm. which is just Grant Wernick uh, on Twitter. Um, And LinkedIn as well. Uh, very available. So ping me about any of the topics we talked about. Uh, thank you all. I uh, really enjoyed being on here, Chip. Uh, your questions are great. You're very curious. I can I can see can see why you're doing such cool things with it with AI and machine learning and search. All right. This was Get Your AI On podcast. Thank you all for listening, and be sure to subscribe. We're gonna post a new episode every other week, so stay tuned for the next conversation. See you next time.